0: If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all apart from the smoking
1: and the drinking and the vulgar mother and the verbal diarrhea i like you very much just as you are i want you to listen to me i'm going to say this again i did not have
0: sexual relations with that woman. The message is simple. It's time to bring about fundamental change.
1: Hello and welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward.
0: And I'm Emma Shortis.
1: So, like we said at the start of this second season of Barely Getting By, 2016, that very tumultuous year that saw, amongst many other things, the election of Donald Trump as US President means in a way that we should be revisiting the 90s and particularly the clinton presidency and their ongoing mixed legacy for the us and the world in our last season we also spoke at length about what emma and i call white lady feminism we're not alone in that so we're also coming back to that and in this first installment of this episode that's going to be through an examination of that most divisive of political figures hillary clinton Hillary Clinton, she, in a way, she embodies the aspirations and also the problems with feminism in the 1990s. So we're going to start with her. Um, So Emma, can you tell me, tell me a bit about Hillary Clinton, her background? Who is she?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think you're right, Chloe. That she does um, kind of embody '90s feminism, and also the, I guess, the kind of waves of feminism as well. Because we can we can reflect on that by what name we use for her. You know that originally she goes, of course, by Hillary Rodham. She refuses to change her name initially when she's marrying Bill Clinton, and then she goes to Hillary Clinton, um, apparently because his mother was so upset that she wasn't going to change her name, and then she becomes Hillary Rodham Clinton. She kind of takes, I guess, re-ownership of her name. So she she does kind of follow, I think, the trajectory of, of Western feminism. Um, but to go back, she she's originally from Chicago. She was born there, and she herself describes her childhood as a stable middle-class one. She went to Wellesley College, um, so she's a part of a kind of wave of women in the 70s going to school, going to college, um, and she was elected there as the first ever student speaker at the commencement ceremony, which is kind of like is the graduation ceremony that, that are held uh, held across the US and they they often have um, really high profile speakers. So this year, you know, Bar- Barack Obama recorded commencement speeches and stuff. They can be really important. Um, so, you know, at this early stage, she's being noticed um, and noticed in the media as well for her speaking skills and for her political aspirations. Um, she then went to Yale Law School. There it is again. Um, as we've discussed many times, Chloe, Yale Law School has a lot to answer for. Um, and when she was there, she was one of only 27 women in that class. So, so she is, I think, a, tra- a trailblazer really at that time. And, and Yale Law School is also, of course, where she meets and starts dating Bill Clinton.
1: And can you tell me a little bit about her politics? Because as I understand it, when she was younger, Hillary Clinton was, in fact, a Republican,
0: She was, that's right. She came from a family of Republicans, um, which is a very common story, I think, for particularly white women of that era. They come from stable, middle-class families who who traditionally vote Republican, and then often through education and life experience, and um, Hillary Clinton speaks particularly of the influence of her mother, who had an extremely difficult childhood. They, I guess, kind of come to the Democrat Party.
1: Okay, cool. So, so she meets and she starts dating Bill Clinton. What did that mean for her as as a young woman, as a young adult, and a professional, and an aspiring politician?
0: Well, I, I think what happens next is it kind of speaks a little bit to to what we're trying to get up with this um, episode when we talk about liberal feminism, because in a way, Hillary Clinton's story in, in meeting and marrying Bill is is a pretty common one, I think, for women of this era. So she's an extremely smart, extremely ambitious young woman who, you know, and I am editorializing here, who, who kind of marries a man that she's better than. And in the end, despite kind of the promises of this feminism of the 1970s that she grew up with, she ends up having to tie her aspirations, her intelligence and her political ambitions to that of her husband. So she marries Bill. And she goes on to become the first lady of Arkansas, which I think is probably not, not, it's not really, I think, something that she enjoyed that much. But she and Bill develop, I think, a really deep, important intellectual partnership that kind of carries them through these political experiences. And I, I would say here as well that it's really easy now, looking back, to think or to forget about just how charismatic and how intelligent Bill Clinton is. He is a kind of captivating political figure even at this time. It's easy now, you know, given what we know about him to kind of dismiss him as kind of, well, you know, for one of a, a better description, a bit gross. But at this time, he is he is sort of nothing but charming. He's an up-and-comer, he's extremely intelligent, he's extremely charismatic, and and they have this you know, what is, what is for the time, especially for a place like Arkansas, a very modern, um, almost in some people's eyes, radical partnership. Okay,
1: so how does that then translate to the White House to, and to Hillary Clinton's position as the First Lady of the United States?
0: So, So Hillary Clinton becomes a... A first lady really like no other. She she's completely different, and that's obvious even from from Bill Clinton's presidential campaign because she's really prominent in a way that that other wives haven't been. She's no Jackie O. She's not there just to kind of look gorgeous and host beautiful dinner parties and wear extraordinary clothes. She's not a Nancy Reagan. She's not a retiring figure. She has you know she she has a brain and she is open about it and she's proud of it. So when she is the First Lady of the United States, or, or FLOTUS in, in US politics speak, she's often accused, um, or, or sometimes admired, admired you know, it come, it's one of those um, titles that's kind of barbed or, or not, depending on your perspective. She's accused of being co-president. So she plays this really, really active role in the Clinton presidency right from the start, and and I think again just to go back at what I was saying earlier to what I was saying earlier about their relationship, I think sometimes this is construed as her being pushy and her you know Bill refusing or or being unwilling to counter her ambitions um, or being afraid to confront her because she's such a scary smart lady, but. I think and and maybe this is me editorializing a little bit bill is completely on board with this you know that this isn't a partnership of minds and intelligence and he he isn't just indulging her he wants her to take a prominent role in in his administration
1: so in that sense the the clinton presidency is a shared project between bill and hillary clinton i think it's also if you could give a little bit of explanation around this because i think it's it's Quite strange and unfamiliar for an Australian audience to hear about the way that these sort of cabinet appointments happen under under an American presidency, and you know these sort of I guess um organisation and appointment of people to these special roles. It's not like here, is it, where you know people have to be members of the government to take on these these
0: additional duties. That's right. It's, it's not like here at all. So the president basically has total discretion when it comes to appointing members of his, in, in you know, it's always his, um, cabinet. So instead of having to be an MP already to become the minister of agriculture or, or whatever you want to call it, the president actually nominates the person that he wants to be the secretary of agriculture or the secretary of state. They then have to be confirmed by, uh, Congress through, through a vote. They have to be confirmed by the Senate, um, for for secretaries but in the case of hillary clinton in during the bill clinton presidency she was kind of appointed to a to manage a, a for want of a better word a kind of task force when it came to healthcare. so she didn't have to be confirmed by the senate she was kind of leading this policy initiative and that's again because the president has discretion to do that to appoint basically whoever he wants to to you know to draw on the best minds of the nation as he sees fit so um Early on in the Clinton presidency, in fact, even before he's kind of um, even before he takes office, the flagship issue that Hillary takes up is health care. The message is simple. It's time to bring about fundamental change, control our nation's soaring health care costs and provide security for American families again. So Bill Clinton has campaigned on health care um, as part of his bid for the presidency. And he has been very clear, along with Hillary, of course, of course that he wants every American to have healthcare. So this is an issue, as, as people might know, that has come up time and time again in American politics. And it's actually this initiative, the Clinton's efforts to get some form of universal health care, I suppose, that marks the beginning of a debate that has been raging for decades. And, and the, it's this reform that has kind of shaped the contours of that debate. So the Clintons have this kind of radical project, I suppose, of trying to get healthcare to all Americans and it's Hillary that leads the task force. Okay, cool. So
1: so what does Hillary Clinton do in healthcare?
0: So she spends basically a little a little bit under two years trying to develop a healthcare package, a new healthcare package for all Americans. She works on it um, extremely hard, by by all accounts, and it ends up in something called the the Health Security Act of nineteen ninety four, which comes in at a brief one thousand three hundred and forty two pages, so it is um, a, pr- a pretty hefty package, and. Unfortunately, for um, from Hillary Clinton's perspective, it fails. There is huge opposition to this project. It's incredibly complicated, as you might guess from how how long it is. But there's also um, just extreme partisan opposition to the to the project of getting healthcare to all Americans, as we know. Um, and and I'm not talking just kind of standard political opposition. I'm talking uh, U.S. style opposition, as in you know she had to wear a bulletproof vest when she was talking about this in public. People. Were burning effigies of Hillary Clinton because of this project. And partly because of that, also because of the the extremely complicated nature of the project that she, of the package that she, along with a n- number of other people, developed, um, it doesn't even get to a vote. So it's not just that it's voted down and fails that way. It actually never gets to a vote on the floor of the House. So it's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty critical political failure, I think, that has consequences up until today, when when Donald Trump is is now trying to undo what's become known as Obamacare, and and again that has a has a history because this health health security act also became known as Hillary Care in the nineteen nineties.
1: Okay, and you can I think I can see in that the beginnings of this really rabid hostility to Hillary Clinton, which I think would you say it's is it fair to say that that's kind of I guess it's a mix of repulsion at her as, you know, as a woman, also as this, you know, co-president figure, but also as kind of this figure from, you know, this liberal technocrat of sorts coming in and telling people what to do.
0: Yeah, would that be fair? I think I think that's absolutely fair. It's a combination of all of those things and and it is one of those it's a reminder I think of of what a kind of lightning rod Hillary Clinton is for all of those things because it's really difficult to talk about her and her role in those nuanced terms, you know, that it is possible for all of three of those things you just described Chloe to be true at once. You know, it's it's not true that Hillary Clinton is shot down in this particularly in this healthcare reform package purely because of misogyny but misogyny does play a huge role and and the kind of rage i think on the part of particularly republican men at this upstart woman thinking that she can walk in and and be involved in politics how dare she that is absolutely part of it but it's also um frustration i think with this technocracy as you say you know coming up with a package that is 1300 plus pages wrong that even experts even healthcare experts are saying we don't understand what this means there's anger with that Um, and I think also anger with her, um, and this is tied to misogyny, of course, her abrasiveness, you know, that she walks in from Arkansas and thinks that she understands how Washington, D.C. works. And a lot of the criticism that comes at her out of this is that she didn't understand the kind of power dynamics of Washington. She didn't understand or respect the processes of Congress. She didn't negotiate well. You know, she was more prone to criticising than negotiating. And it's, again, I think it's possible that that is... At the same time, partly mis- misogyny, but also partly valid criticism.
1: Well, and, you know, and I'm, I mean, I have to own here that I'm myself, I'm not a huge fan of Hillary Clinton, especially when it comes to her politics and there, I guess, how, how they suit the demands of today. But that's, you know, that sort of ego, that's something that you can definitely see in her behaviour in the decades since and her conduct as... A presidential, you know, as which she's been campaigning for either the nomination or campaigning as president is, you know, a very strong sense of entitlement and an unwillingness to listen to either critics who, you know, critics who are, have quite reasoned criticism of her, but also to adapt herself to the political situation that she actually faces.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that that is fair enough criticism. And I think, but, you know, particularly when it comes to the failure of this healthcare package, um quite a number of, of, of critics and supporters have argued that this is formative for her politics because what the lesson that she draws out of it is not to be so furious at a system that, that tears down efforts to provide universal health care, but to want to understand the system better. So she regards this as a kind of personal failure to, I guess, work the politics of Washington DC. So she comes out of it I think as more ambitious when it comes to her political skills but also as an incrementalist so she doesn't want to tear down this system that doesn't give people healthcare. she wants to understand it better and be able to work within it and she, she describes herself then as somebody who works in small steps.
1: So that's really interesting because what that's saying to me is that from this very bruising experience of attempting healthcare reform in the 90s that made hillary clinton a more 90s politician in the sense that we understand it
0: that is exactly right
1: so what about who, who how did women react to hillary clinton who is obviously you know a figure of enormous force and power on you know the biggest political stage in america and the world
0: well, I, I think like like with anything Hillary Clinton, um, reactions are extreme and they are very divided. But I think in, in the 90s, um, largely with her own demographic, you know, with, with people who look like her and have experiences like her, she is the subject of, of great admiration, I think, and respect and, and sometimes pity, you know, in a, in a kind of empathic sense. So I think what a lot of women of that era remember about Clinton is not so much her political failures when it comes to healthcare, but it's it's more about symbolism. And I think that's really embodied in a speech that she gave a year after the, the failure of her health, of the Health Security Act at the United Nations on, on September the 8th in 1995. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference... Let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all.
1: Now, I think, you know, it's, it's, I think it's impossible to consider the Clinton presidency and particularly this partnership between Bill and Hillary Clinton seriously without at least touching on the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And I think, you know, I'm really cautious about approaching this subject because I think that, in a sense, it has been done to death. And um, I'm also, you know, a great admirer of Monica Lewinsky and the way in which that she has, in the subsequent years, owned her story and owned this as her story. So, you know, I think that we're going to try and be quite careful here not to be prurient in talking about the details of that and to really focus on what it meant for Hillary Clinton as a, as a political figure. Um, Last year, Monica Lewinsky visited Melbourne, where Emma and I both live, and I actually bought us both tickets to go and see her, but unfortunately, Emma missed out um, because
0: she was having a baby that weekend. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah. I think uh, I think Vivi was a couple of days old when, when Monica Lewinsky was speaking, and I'm still devastated by it. Yeah, so, so I've seen Al Gore, but Chloe has the much cooler story of seeing Monica Lewinsky.
1: It was it was very cool. One of the funniest moments was actually before I went in. I was waiting outside the Melbourne Town Hall to go and see Monica Lewinsky speak. And there, was, there were women lined up for a whole city block waiting to go in and see her. And there were these two – there was this car that was stopped in traffic opposite us. And there were these two girls, these teenage girls. They would have been about 14. And they leaned out the out the car window and they were all excited. And they're like, who are you going to go see? And someone shouted back, Monica Lewinsky. And this girl's like, I don't know who that is. And then a second later, she pops out ahead and she's like, My mum knows who she is. Which I think, um, I think that that, I found that quite heartening because I do think that there is a sense in which Monica Lewinsky has the right to be forgotten in some way and not to be this, you know, this extreme, this extremely representative figure of the 1990s. But that said, we do, I do feel like we, it's something we have to talk about. So, Em, could you give us a very quick recap of what this scandal was all about?
0: Yeah, sure. And I, I think you're right that this has been absolutely done to death. So I also don't want to spend too much time talking about it. But I, I guess in short, um, Monica Lewinsky moved to Washington, D.C. just a few months before Hillary Clinton gave that speech about women's rights or human rights at the, at the UN. She, she moved there because she had an internship with um, Bill Clinton's chief of staff. She then had a um, two-year so-called affair, and I'm using that term carefully for for reasons that we'll probably get into. Um, She had an affair with the the president that became public in 1998. And as we know, the scandal of that consumed the rest of his presidency and and kind of continues to define it and to define the political career of Hillary Clinton. So Bill Clinton denied the affair initially um, with that famous phrase, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And I think the phrase, that woman, kind of encapsulates what we want to talk about when we talk about 90s feminism and and Hillary Clinton and Monica Lewinsky because Hillary Clinton does play a really important role in this this scandal that that maybe doesn't get as much attention as of course Bill Clinton and and Monica Lewinsky do but I think it's really important to examine Hillary Clinton's role in this because it tells us a lot about white lady feminism in in the 1990s so so as I said Clinton Bill Clinton initially denies this affair um, completely and Hillary goes all in with her husband. Um, so in January of 1998, really early on in this um, scandal, she goes on the Today Show and she says that this is all a vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced his run for president. So it's it's framed as the Republicans out to get Bill Clinton in any way they can, which is true. You know, th- there is absolutely true to that statement. Now, no one is, I think, really surprised by Hillary Clinton doing this because she'd actually done this before. So in January in, of 1992, before Clinton is elected, elected during his campaign, uh, a woman called Jennifer Flowers spoke to some tabloids and, and claimed that she'd had a 12-year affair with the aspiring president, that he, she had been his mistress. In response to that, Hillary Clinton goes on 60 Minutes, With Bill, And and she says um, in an iconic phrase that I think sometimes now is associated with the Lewinsky scandal, but is actually about a different woman. She goes on and she says, you know, I'm not sitting here, some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor him and what he's been through and what we've been through together. And then she says, and, you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. And I'm, I'm using that quote because it's really important, because her saying that effectively saves his presidential campaign. It's tanking at, the, at this time because of this scandal and a few other things, and her going on and, and standing by her man, even though she says that's not what she's doing, um, really saves the campaign. And you know then we fast forward to 1998, and she's doing the same thing again. But this time she's got help. She has help across uh, kind of white, Democrat, progressive America.
1: Yeah. So, look, I can see, you know, Hillary Clinton as a political operative and also as, you know, as the partner of this man. I can understand why it, it makes sense, even if I don't entirely respect it, um, that she would turn very sharply against Monica Lewinsky and she would make Monica Lewinsky out to be the villain in this scenario, which we know was not the case. This was very much, in a lot of senses, this was this was a real setup. What about other women? So, did other women demonstrate any solidarity with Monica Lewinsky?
0: Uh, they certainly, they certainly did, and especially early on, I think Lewinsky was um, kind of construed as the victim in all of this. But where it mattered, that changed very quickly, and I think the kind of um, one of the important examples of that is a columnist for the New York Times called Maureen Dowd, who who still writes for the Times. Um, because she, uh, you know, initially, I think, was sympathetic to Lewinsky, um, as were many people, but when it became apparent, I think, what this scandal might do to Bill Clinton's presidency, to the first democratic, you know, so-called progressive presidency in a long time, Maureen Dowd and a lot of other women, white women in particular, turned on Lewinsky um, with, I think, a kind of extraordinary viciousness. So Maureen Dowd wrote about this in the New York Times, Constantly, basically, for a whole year. And she did things like call Monica Lewinsky um, a ditzy predatory White House intern. So Lewinsky is constructed as both a predator who's out to destroy the most powerful man um, in in the world, uh, but also a, a sort of dumb idiot, you know, a kind of a, a ditzy little bimbo who doesn't know what she's doing um, and, and has the potential to destroy the progressive project for America. Dowd won a Pulitzer Prize in 1999 for the writing that she did on the Lewinsky scandal, which I actually didn't know until I, I hadn't realized until I was revisiting this issue. So this is the kind of prominence that those takes are getting. So basically, um, Lewinsky is totally thrown to the wolves in in this scandal by progressives everywhere who who turn on her. So this, this Poor young woman is is basically getting it from everywhere. She's got Republicans out to destroy her. She has investigators threatening her with life in prison, and she has you know uh, so-called progressive women calling her a ditzy predator. So this is an extraordinary attack on a young woman, and it it worked in the end. You know, I think we can argue um, forever about whether the affair should have brought brought down a president. You know, whether this relationship should have stayed private whether the president should have been impeached whatever but i think what there's no doubt about is that a young woman's life was almost destroyed um, through no real fault of her, her own and a lot of that was done by powerful white women
1: this is something that does come up time and again as especially in the me too era as you know we're coming to this long overdue reckoning with the ways that a lot of powerful men abuse their power and their privileges. I think Monica Lewinsky, and I said before, you know, I'd really admire her. She, she has emerged from this as in an extraordinary way to become an advocate for victims of bullying and victims of abuse. She also has an absolutely incredible Twitter thread. She has such a great sense of humor. Um, What about those apologists? What about the people who are like more in doubt who are apologising for Bill Clinton? Have they ever expressed any remorse for what they did?
0: No, not really. And I think this is why, again, it's as much as it has been done to death, it's important to revisit Lewinsky because in the way that those kind of two strands have gone in terms of, um, I suppose, the way that Me Too has influenced the way that we think about it is that you do see, um, I think, Lewinsky emerging as this kind of extraordinary figure but on on the one side you have figures like Maureen Dowd and and also Hillary Clinton who really refused to examine their own role and their own reactions to this scandal and to this young woman. So there's an absolute an, an absolute refusal, especially on the part of somebody like Maureen Dowd to, to examine their own role in, in what happened to Monica Lewinsky, in the way that they were willing to I, I really sacrifice their feminism to sa- to try and save Bill Clinton's presidency. And, and that I think that refusal we are really grappling with today in light of the way that Monica Lewinsky herself is now speaking about this time in her life and the way that I think Me Too and 2016 has made a lot of us kind of, uh, I guess, rethink, you know, Bill Clinton's idea of, of sexual relations and the nature of consent. And, and Monica Lewinsky herself, I think, has has written um, some just extraordinary pieces about this, reflecting on this period in her life and what it means in, in the light of Me Too. And I'm just going to read some of what she's, she's written about this from a piece in Vanity Fair, because I think, you know, as Chloe and I have discussed, this has been done to death. But what happens a lot of the time when we talk about Monica Lewinsky is her voice is lost. So I'm just going to read something that she's written about this now. At 44, I'm beginning, just beginning, to consider the implications of the power differentials that were so vast between a president and a White House intern. I'm beginning to entertain the notion that in such a circumstance, the idea of consent might well be rendered moot, although power imbalances and the ability to abuse them do exist even when the sex has been consensual. But it's also complicated. Very, very complicated. Um you said
1: you said just then that you see you saw this as women throwing away their feminism or betraying their feminism. I think maybe this is actually a an expression of a particular type of feminism. This is the feminism of the 90s that we grew up with and that we found so we find so troubling today. Could you could you define that in a few words?
0: Yeah, sure. And I I think thanks for picking me up on that because I think you're right. This it is a kind of particularly 90s form of feminism that is embodied by Hillary Clinton and and a generation of white women I think who who I guess, are promised in the 1970s that they will not have to play second fiddle to the men in their lives and and throughout their lifetimes, through their own careers, they see just how much that isn't true. So in one sense, I think I have a great sympathy for Hillary Clinton and and women like her, but also I am enormously critical of the kind of the way that their feminism manifests as a result of those kind of particular lived experiences. So for this kind of 90s white lady feminist feminism it's we describe it I think as a liberal feminism the project is really about gaining access to power and influence for women it's it's nothing else it's it's gaining access to systems that have benefited men it's not about changing those systems it's about getting access to them so what this what that feminism does I think because of that is kind of really insists that should women get access to that power the world will just automatically become a better place because it is assumed that that women are better you know you are, we still see this all the time that there are kind of lamentations about how many women are on the boards of ASX whatever companies, you know, that there are more men called Dave on boards than there are women on, on company boards. So this is the kind of liberal feminism that we're talking about. And implicit in that is an assumption that if you do get more women on boards, if you get more women into leadership positions in politics, the world will just automatically be a better place. Because, you know, the assumption in that is that women are inherently better and they're inherently more gentle than men. So they will do a better job of leading of because they like taking care of people. So there is in this liberal feminism, a kind of, I think, biological essentialism about the nature of womanhood. And that is why I think we are we are seeing um, particularly boomer white women, JK Rowling looking at you, going down the road of trans exclusionary radical feminism. So this biological essentialism about women being inherently more gentle, um, better at taking care of people, that politics will be better if women are in there. That's why I think there's a particular subset of women who are so threatened by trans people.
1: And I think that's, I think that that's a really interesting and a good way of putting it because, you know, we've spoken before on this podcast about waves in feminism. And I, I increasingly don't think that's a very useful way of thinking about feminism because I think a lot of feminisms run together And in people, in the examples of people like Hillary Clinton, but also people like J.K. Rowling, what we're seeing is kind of a second wave feminism that's making itself very comfortable with capital and also that is also extremely comfortable with a very fixed idea of what a woman, being a woman means and also what being a feminist means. And I think that one of the lessons that we've certainly learned in the last few years and a sense in which I think we have left the 90s behind is that feminism means a lot of things it also absolutely does not mean those
0: things that people like hillary clinton and jk rowling have turned out to stand for Totally. And speaking of, of JK Rowling, um, as, as we kind of try and wrap up this conversation, what we're going to do in the next couple of instalments in this episode when we talk about um, the nature of liberal feminism in the, is in the 1990s is look to culture and look to the way that this kind of feminism manifests itself in the culture of the 1990s when we look in particular at a favourite topic of Chloe's, which is the revival of Jane Austen in the 1990s. Barely Gettin' By is supported and produced by RMIT University.
1: Original music by Stuart Cullen.